black holes, warp time, the end of the world. It's all relativity as we look back and forward at Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. From theoretical physics to a complete contempt for physics, Fast and Furious 9 takes a muscle car into orbit, and it's not the most implausible thing about the movie. Yes, we know, we're late to the party, but we finally got round to watching time loop comedy Palm Springs. Yes, we know we're late to the party, but... Just kidding. I'm Tana V. Patel. I'm Dave Bradley. I'm Richard Edwards. There's all this, plus Hugh, Q and Lord of the Rings 2 in Robbie the Robot's Waiting, the podcast that hangs out with fifth dimensional super beings. Hello. Hi. Hi there. Okay, big film release right now. It's Fast and Furious 9. It's definitely sci-fi territory now. They've gone into space. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think this was possibly one of the silliest, stupidest films I've <laughs> ever seen. <laughs> and at the same time, I kind of liked it. Totally. As soon as yeah. we finished, as soon as my, I went with my sister, as soon as the film finished, she just looked at me and went, well, that was ridiculous. But she, <laughs> <laughs> but she was smiling. So I knew it was not a bad ridiculous. It was a good ridiculous. And so I think it, if that was its aim, <laughs> then they did well. But there were so many moments, yeah. I guess. Yeah, it was full of moments. Well, when we would see it, Dave, I'm not sure if it was because the cinema was empty or because the film was so loud. I couldn't tell if other people were laughing, but it was so funny. <laughs> it was so it funny. Was. It's very funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's preposterous, right? The the series is becoming more and more preposterous, and this just totally leaned into it. I mean, it's not a spoiler to say, I think, because it's in the trailer and because it's been what's been talked about. And it's why we're talking about it here on this sci-fi podcast. Yeah. They uh, have ridiculously powerful magnetic gadgets and they send a car into space, All right? So that's, and that's how preposterous it gets from a series that started yeah. 20 years ago, uh, a kind of, as a kind of point break, but with cars to where they've got to now, they've been getting more and more ridiculous. And this just turns out to 11. They just totally leaned into being silly, haven't they? And it was huge fun. It was fun. And it's true. I have to say that it was really loud. Like it's one of the things my sister complained about. And it's so ironic for us. We're normally complaining about how quiet films are. Um, <laughs> this one, this one could have could have turned it down a notch. But in a way, it does show how much more out there it is. It's just all about the noise and the blast and the shouting and the laughing and and it was and it was about last like for example and things that you don't they do sort of push the the barrel each time but you you always expect certain things you know, expect the big car chase and tons of guns and the henchmen coming after them and about eight cars on their tail you expect all that but then you then you have moments with like helen mirren who's just stolen a necklace and chatting <laughs> to, yeah. to vin diesel while driving a lamborghini why not you know so well, he's a favorite american so yeah, yeah, yeah it's a favorite yeah. american so i loved it i loved those bits and then ending up at that party which was possibly yes. the weirdest thing in the film yes yeah but yeah. without any explanation we're just like yeah here you go just lots of cars <laughs> and women in white dresses yeah. dancing exactly. with champagne just, just went i really want to go to that party where the hell's that that looks amazing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they do like a good a good glam party don't they and uh but yeah, so I have to say, I, I, I've been a long time evangelist of the Fast and Furious series. Um, I love it. And, I, you know, I, 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 I totally accept the fact that they're basically superheroes now. Um, the punching well, there's for- even that conversation, isn't there? Yes. That, yeah. uh, Roman has where he's saying, yeah, mm. I've survived all this stuff. I'm beginning to think that we're immortal. Yeah. But then no, they're I just, just, they are totally leaning into that silliness. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, I, I, I want to sort of comment on that because this is one of the reasons why I think that 
if anyone's listening to this thinking, well, maybe I should watch the series, I, I want to say this isn't the place to start, even if you're a sci-fi fan. Um, but yeah, they absolutely, they, they, they totally accept the fact that they're now basically invincible. They're even just, you know, when the two leads, um, uh, Vin Diesel and uh, John Senna, who's introduced here as, as his brother, again, it's not a spoiler, you can see that in the trailer, um, and they're fighting, they are punching chunks out of the wall and... Uh, leaping death-defying leaps across streets and things mm. and they're essentially basically behaving like superheroes now and that's fine i'm i'm totally on board with that the, the franchise has for a while <laughs> just given up on uh, on the laws of physics and you're essentially watching a superhero movie mm. really in all in all but name they've even got you know um uh Charlize Theron as the mm. not exactly the villain of the piece but Villanelle. certainly this kind of presence <laughs> that she's sort of trapped in a in a perspex prison a little bit like Magneto or something so they, yeah. they, they're yeah. borrowing all the tropes of the superhero films mm. and also the way that the cars are sort of driving convoy is so Transformers absolutely absolutely <laughs> yeah. yeah so and this is all this is all fine I think people should enjoy it for that there's a couple of reasons why I think it's probably not my favourite of the franchise, and I have been a fan for a long time. The, the where Fast and Furious really comes into its own, and there were some really early great movies, Fast and Furious Three, Tokyo Drift, of which there are some characters in this, by the way, more more present than mm. in other series. There's there's callbacks to that. Um, was great in its own way, but it wasn't as preposterous as this. Where it really kind of turns is is Fast and Furious Five, Fast Five, where mm. it they they absolutely lean into the idea that this band of, of of you know incredible characters do these capers um but this one there are a couple of things i've always liked about the franchise which this one sort of doesn't doesn't quite fire on for me for instance one of the things is i i i think that this there's a theme running through all these films about the strength of family and in that the toretto family has always kind of been highlighted as this, this, this kind of great example of that for all their their kind of you know, villains with a heart of gold and their and their kind of Robin Hood uh, criminality. Um, it's been a you know they, they've really had a strong sense of family and and Dom, uh, the Vin Diesel character, has spoken in the past about how what a what a great role model his dad is and and they've spoken at length about him bringing up Mia and all this kind of stuff. Um, but in this one, we find that John Senna is a long lost brother as a result of a family feud and that their father was in debt and there was a problem and they're not, you know, they did, they go yeah. to some length to show that he was still a good father to Dom and so on. But for me, it's sort of weakened some of it. If you, if you want to get yeah. the sense of fast and furious at its best, go back to like five and six, where you sort of look at this family and think, Oh, I'd, I'd quite like to go to for a barbecue with these guys. <laughs> There's a little bit, it's slightly more, slightly more fraught in this one. I think in a way that I, that for me, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily that, that, that dynasty at its best. Also, I think the there's you mentioned this, Rich. Um, Roman, uh, the character played by Torres Gibson, is um, he jokes a lot more in this. He's a little bit more of a of a spoof character in this. He draws attention to the fact that they're that they're invincible. He draws it. He sort of almost winks at the camera, kind of going, oh, "I've I've somehow been shot, but haven't been hurt uh, <laughs> about it." Uh, you know, and and there's something about that which I think up until now the series has almost. One of its strengths has been, no matter how stupid it's got, they've all taken it incredibly seriously. Um, they were, you know, he, they mentioned this, they were genuinely chasing a submarine on behalf of a shadowy government agency, uh, you know, and and they sort of really accept that as part of this universe. Something about this one, they almost, the characters themselves, 
looked at the camera and acknowledged it was a bit stupid, mm. which is fine. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I love the film. I thought it was absolutely enjoyable. But I think if you're new to the series, you have to start somewhere else to see how it builds to this. This is not a great example of, of the film accepting its its tropes. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Well, I think it's a really weird mix anyway of utter preposterousness and total earnestness. Right. So, so, you know, so you've got this sort of acknowledgement that this is this is just mad and, you know, we're like superheroes, but then you've got Vin Diesel being so serious yeah, about the yeah. family yeah. Um, and, and sort of these flashbacks and, you know, his relationship with uh, with his brother Jacob. And it's, it's like that there's always been this, um, those sort of two sides of the Fast and Furious movies, but here that they really feel like polar opposites. Yeah. And sometimes you just think, Finn, just smile, just have a <laughs> laugh, man. <laughs> you know, you're driving nice cars, which you clearly enjoy. And I have to say that the car sequences were brilliant. I mean, the way they use magnets. Oh, I, love that. I absolutely magnets. love that. I cannot yeah. get enough of it. I want to see more of that. The, the idea that just, just it's, it's almost, for me... You know the way that The Matrix just sort of, with special effects, revolutionised the way that they do fight scenes, and then they did it again with car scenes in The Matrix 2 for all that film's flaws. With this, they just went, let's let's amp up the, the car chase scenes by having the ability to drag cars across town with magnets. And I just could see, lo- I could just see that again. I thought that was amazing. I just want to see more. I want to see more car scenes where you can just pluck a car from one ro- one lane to another, like a Skelectric using magnets. Brilliant. <laughs> and also, I think their choices of locations. I mean, going through a minefield where they're kind of working out how fast they go- have to go <laughs> yeah. to not get blown <laughs> up. <laughs> or, or Edinburgh as well, where you've got streets on different levels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And then Tbilisi, which... Uh, seems to be the biggest city in the world just judging on how far they travel <laughs> yeah 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 um, but this absolutely. is a franchise of course where uh, they were chasing a plane down a runway and someone did the maths that actually the runway would have had to have been 37 miles long so <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 it's so a revisit yeah. that with the rocket car versus yeah, the plane yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely one of its strengths because we're expecting the car chases, but they still are finding ways to make them really exciting. And uh, in terms of, you know, how they're how they're sort of um, producing them and what kind of new gadgets they can use and new style of car, I suppose. And then also the location. So, yeah, they they do ramp it up, but it's not it's not just I suppose it's not just the car chases. And they've got obviously they've got planes in there and. And um, I do say, I would say for me, the best action scene was at the beginning when they were going through the minefield and then, and then they have to cross the bridge and then, (laughs) (laughs) and then John Cena literally flies out of there. And I was like, what, what was, what was, what just happened? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's incredible. I think, I think you're right, Rich. We're, we're watching this movie at the end of lockdown. And so the cinema wasn't very populated, but I, but I think those of us who were in there, did all have a little chuckle or an audible chuckle when they basically leap off on their rope and kind of swing they sort of swing around in their car like <laughs> like, like somehow car. <laughs> it was it was Tarzan <laughs> across <laughs> well <laughs> the fact that we're we're just so amused by this means oh, it's, it's definitely so worth the price of admission right exactly. I think that's exactly. it's still well, making us laugh it's so well, good well, i think J- justin lynn's back as director on this one I mean, he he's directed <laughs> 
a, a lot of the films. Yeah, yeah. And he, I think he, he was responsible for Fast and Furious 5. And I mean, he also did Star Trek Beyond. But I, yeah. I think his whole approach to these films is basically, wouldn't it be cool if? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's how the script is obviously written. And I think everything just starts with an idea for a set piece. And, yeah. you know, the plot will service the set piece. And and this is a franchise where that totally works. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I watched a show that sounds a lot like Loki, but isn't uh, also on Disney Plus, Luca. The new Pixar Maybe. movie, like yeah. Soul at Christmas, when no cinemas were open, they've, even though cinemas have now opened, uh, Disney have decided to put it out on Disney Plus which I'm kind of a little sad about because it feels like mm. a movie that deserves to be on at the cinema. But at the same time, mm. I was just a really nice film to watch on a Saturday night. Um, and not yeah, premium I, as well. <laughs> no, exactly. You know, Black Widow you'll have to pay for. Um, and Cruella you had to pay for, uh, but not Luca. But yeah, I, I just started watching and thinking, you know, this is lesser Pixar. You know, when they kind of, kind of do movies mm. that other studios could do, like Onward maybe, um, mm cars which i'm really not a fan of but i, I actually <laughs> yeah. i actually really warmed to to this and not just because of the mediterranean sun um <laughs> i haven't seen it yet rich although disney plus keeps advertising it to me what, what's the premise basically there's two kids um who are not ordinary kids because they live underwater they're fish fish boys i guess yeah. um and one of them realizes that if you come out of the water they start to look like humans and they live on the Mediterranean coast of Italy, and basically they make their way into the town um, and we, we hang out with all the humans. Obviously, they've got to keep it under wraps that they're really fish, but all they want to do is get enough money to buy themselves a Vespa. <laughs> <laughs> and they decide to do that by competing in a triathlon, uh, a triathlon that involves swimming, uh, riding a bike, and eating pasta. <laughs> and they make friends with a girl in the village... <laughs> And, uh, yeah, that's basically what it's about. It's all about mood. That's the thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's just this sort of the beautiful Mediterranean light, the music, um, yeah, and just the idea, I guess, of a long, hot summer where you don't have anything to do. You know, it's just about having fun. Yeah. Um, and that's why I really liked it. It was nice. I have to say, it does give you that very warm, bright feeling. And I watched it on a rainy afternoon, so <laughs> it's perfect. Um, I would say, though, that um, it's probably um, more geared towards the younger, uh, the younger viewer. Um, so I think the primary school generation would, like, absolutely love it. But at the same time, like you said, I think, you know, it's got that, like the usual Disney Pixar films, it's got that appeal for adults. I even just love the simple things where they just go off looking for Senior Vespa because Senior Vespa must have a Vespa and (laughs) and like the evil uh the sort of like evil villain of the plot is clearly like this very typical swarmy kind of Italian dude (laughs) on a Vespa Um, but yeah so they have those kind of um quintessential Italian feels to it um, but it's all about family, ultimately, um, and having fun in the summer. Yeah, he's not really that evil, is he, the baddie? I mean, no. he, he's kind of sort of he's small a, town evil. Yeah, he's like he's like kids' school ground evil, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a small-scale movie, but it's not bad for that. It is just a coming-of-age drama that ha- just happens to have fish boys in it. <laughs> and I think I have mm. to mention as well that Sasha Baron Cohen 
is amazing as the relative who, who lives like really in the deeps. So, you know, he's got <gasps> the light the on his head. Uncle, is the deep sea uncle, is he? The deep sea uncle. Yeah, <laughs> the, the deep sea uncle you don't really want to talk about. And it's yeah, worth hanging around one. to the end of the credits um, just to get more of him. <laughs> I missed that. I did not realise that. Okay, I have to go back now. So I actually watched Mars uh, season two this week, which is on Disney Plus or available on Sky as well. Um, I didn't know there was a Mars season one, actually. <laughs> well, I think it probably did quite go quite under the radar because it is a, a Nat Geo, National Geographic um, original series, and uh, which they don't generally do. Um, and it's really good... A mix of science documentary with space drama, which is quite a unique sort of ploy. Although it did kind of remind me, Dave, you might get excited, of um, uh, For All Mankind, because mm. they really marry the two ideas well, where they've got these really big uh, space names. So like Elon Musk and Neil deGrasse Tyson and uh, Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, uh, who who sort of come on and talk about you know what would happen if we send a, a, a group of people to Mars and if we do manage to colonize it and who would own it and so they talk of sort of delve into the politics and the economics and the social side of it and all and um, you know in terms of kind of you know current thinking but they talk about it in a way that um, the the cast of the drama parts, basically the astronauts who have got to Mars are actually there. <laughs> and then you sort of cut to the astronauts on Mars who are trying to build this colony. And so it's set in 2033 and they basically initially, they sort of the first sort of series is kind of them getting to Mars and trying to sort of lay down the initial colony. And season two picks up five years later where they've been successful essentially, but they now have to contend with corporations getting to Mars and essentially wanting to mine there and, you know, the clash of sort of scientists versus the miners and the government versus the corporations and all having their own agendas and essentially on a planet which nobody owns and therefore rules don't necessarily apply mm. or at least they don't think they do and so who should who should win out really and you know so there's that and there's also there's great characters there's sort of the um commander of the the colony she's twins with the space council's leader and their sort of interactions of you know how how is it if you kind of leave someone behind uh, yeah at the same time you're connecting with them and then there's like the the sort of two scientists that get together and they're like, uh, we're having us we're having the first Martian baby. What happens? Can that baby then go to Earth? Like, how does that work? So you've got all these kind of things. And it's and the the way that they've done it, it looks very real. The spacecraft themselves, they look great. They've obviously spent quite a lot of money on it. I actually interviewed Andy Weir about Mars season two god pre-pandemic quite a while ago um and he was really excited about it because of the fact that they sort of really do look at on so like the reality of it but through a really interesting drama um so yes mars it's a big question and it was really interesting to watch so yeah so i got into that so i would recommend that one you mentioned for all mankind there and i'm a huge fan of that and and yeah the uh, the impression is that season three of that is going to take our uh, our team to mars which is quite exciting mm -hmm. um out of time so yeah, yeah brilliant 
I finally caught up with the rest of the world and watched <laughs> Palm Springs. Now, because this has been something <laughs> they keep hearing about for ages, and I think it was out in the States quite a while ago. Apparently, it was the most expensive film ever sold at Sundance. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, so, yeah because it's, uh, it, it, was, it's, it was a year ago. It actually um, got a couple of nominations in the, uh, the, the last Golden Globes in 2020, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it finally landed on Amazon, I think, in April, and I was even slower off the mark. But, wow, worth the wait. Great um, film, yeah, uh-huh. great, great fun. So many films have tried to be Groundhog Day, and I think this actually really manages it. It's, it's definitely up there. So, yeah, it's another time loop comedy. Um, it's another time loop romantic comedy, but very different to Groundhog Day uh, in the sense that you've got two people who are in time loops. Well, at least two people, actually. Mm-hmm. So you've got Andy Samberg from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Nine-Nine! who is at a wedding with his girlfriend uh wakes up does a an interesting wedding speech and that attracts the attention of the bride's sister maid of honor um and they kind of get together and they're in the desert and she follows him into a weird warpy thing in a cave and um (laughs) <laughs> as you do, as you do. He, he, to be fair, he does tell her not to follow him. Yeah. And um, yeah, uh, they both end up in a time loop. So they both wake up every morning. Whatever happens to them, they, they wake up in the same place on the day of this wedding. And yeah, their relationship goes from there. But there's so much to it. I mean, it's, it's rude. It's funny. Um, it's, it's kind of sweet as well. It's kind of got a bit of everything. I thought it was a really, really good film. Yeah, I really awesome. enjoyed it. I, I agree. It's 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 got a little bit of everything. It's kind of dark in some places. They're obviously very very flawed characters. But yeah, you're right. They they kind of joke about the fact. I think uh, he said he makes some comment like, "Oh, it's one of those time loop situations that you might have heard of, or something like that." You know, they, they're sort of very much aware of the kind of film they're making. And what's interesting is, yeah, as you say, she she kind of follows him into that cave, and he's clearly already been in stuck in the time loop for some days, many thousands of days. I mean, who knows? So for, in his time, it might be years, yeah. decades. Exactly. So you, so. No, absolutely. So you've got this, as you say, that situation where not only are you kind of, you've got these two characters, but also you sort of join it at a point where the loop has already been going on for a while, which means it means that one of the characters is, is kind of quite far into their experience of that and a little bit unhinged maybe by it. But that's, and it's an extra interesting, interesting interaction. Well, you can't even remember what his job was before he started. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> oh exactly. Yeah. It's and, been there so long. And as you say, there's, there's, they're not the only, the only people in there, but for fear of spoilers, we won't say any more, but yeah, it's, it's definitely worth watching. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's got some very witty dialogue in there and some really nice ideas. And it does sort of play with some kind of dark themes in places the the characters are not at all happy with who they are. Um, and and it's almost like the being stuck with yourself, if you're not happy with who you are day after day and being unable to change anything, no matter what you learn, you have to reset and face yourself again in the morning. Mm-hmm. Because a bit of a theme of it. And so it's almost like being in it's in unlike th- something like um Groundhog Day, or maybe maybe more like Russian Doll, actually, if you remember that on Netflix not long yeah. ago, you're sort of trapped in a kind of hell. Although this plays it for laughs much more than something like Russian Doll does, but it's it's it becomes very clear that what you know they have a bit of fun with it and what they can do with the time, but but being reset every day, it you realise what uh, what horror that is. Uh, I think quite early on. Also, I think the two leads have great chemistry. Andy Samberg and Kristin Milotti, who you mm. might have seen in uh, well, she was the mum in How I Met Your Mother. Yeah. Uh, also, she's in she Black was Mirror in, as well, right? She yeah, she was in um, USS Callister, mm. the uh, Star Trek episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the, the two of them work really well because I guess it's kind of an affectionately antagonistic relationship. It's it's a great it's a great film um, uh, and and worth worth a watch if you, if you haven't already seen it. It has been around for a little while and, and picked up some fantastic reviews, um, some great five star 
reviews and like I said a couple of couple of award nominations but yeah definitely definitely is worth watching it it, it follows some similar paths to things like Groundhog Day there are points where obviously as Bill Murray's character does in that realizes that maybe there's a way out by killing yourself um you know oh, and, but, yeah. but there sort of isn't and it kind of resets but they go through that same thought process don't they there's a few mm-hmm. a few moments like that well, I'm glad you remind me of that one because uh, if you're slow off the mark, Rich, then I'm a total snail because I still yet to watch it. Mm-hmm. But it does sound like it's uh, going to be added to my watch list. Well, if- I'm going to be watching it this evening and tomorrow. <laughs> and the, day after. the one of the things I like about it, and again, I'm trying to avoid uh, any spoilers by saying this, is that the um, uh, is that the, uh, the the character played by um, uh, played by Kristen Malotti essentially at one point decides that that she's going to educate herself and solve the problem and, and again i'm not going to say any spoilers but basically she uses the time loop to teach herself quantum physics when apparently it's it's actually pretty good um quantum physics and relativity that she learns it's, it's kind of based on genuine science and some of the stuff that she's talking about in there and i remember reading an interview with her after it saying that that she was able to start throwing out terms from kind of general relativity um to one of the consultants that they sort of met on the film and they, he was kind of surprised that she'd, she'd learned all this she kind of quite absorbed absorbed all these kind of uh, theories about kind of time travel and about the uh, the way that relativity works and things which is which i thought was great about event horizons and stuff it's uh, there's an interesting sort of segment mm-hmm. where she's quite clearly um you know looking at genuine textbooks and stuff that might be quite useful when we start talking about interstellar dave is that a segue <laughs> I know, right? I know. Great segue. Yeah, absolutely. and welcome to part two and it's time to welcome this week's guest. Andrew Glester is a lecturer in science communication and wildlife filmmaking at UE in Bristol. He also writes features and reviews for Physics World and is the host of the Physics World Stories podcast and love science radio shows. Before the pandemic he was making lots of live shows about space including reimagining Michael Collins's trip around the far side of the moon in a VW camper van and he says his favorite of all these things though is the Cosmic Shed podcast which has featured guests like Michelle Nichols, Benedict Cumberbatch and people who walked on the moon. Hello Andrew. Hello. Hi Hi, welcome. That's nice. That's a nice intro. (laughs) I wrote it so. (laughs) (laughs) So what science fiction and fantasy have you been enjoying lately? I have a nine-year-old daughter so I have been thoroughly enjoying the Bad Batch and um revisiting basically all of star wars um oh, which is you know it's really straight down the middle isn't it but it's it's you've, i've got a nine-year-old daughter what else are you going to do with your time now i have a nine-year-old daughter as well and i can't get her on star wars oh, oh no oh no and she, she knows that daddy loves star wars so she's just like yeah <laughs> whatever rebelling already is that what it is yeah <laughs> So what does your daughter, Andrew, make of the Bad Batch then? Is she enjoying it as much as like the Clone Wars or something like that? Or is this her first introduction to Star Wars? Um, she's definitely enjoying it, but there's not the love for it that there is for the Clone Wars. And Rebels, I think, was a favourite, actually. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but uh, she loves Ahsoka. And mm-hmm. uh, she loved the Mandalorian so much. And then Ahsoka appeared in it, and it was just magical. You know, for... Yeah. That moment when Luke Skywalker came for people mm-hmm. of my age was just truly incredible. For her, it was yeah. when Ahsoka arrived. You know, it was just, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and it, I don't know that the um, that the characters in Bad Batch have, have grabbed her quite enough yet. She loves Omega, obviously, but you know it's not quite 
developed, I think, quite enough yet. Have you been watching it? I have, yeah, and I, I totally agree. I, I think you've kind of got hints of an interesting universe. This is the post-Clone Wars world and the sort of beginnings of the Empire, but you don't really know where it's going because obviously Clone Wars and Rebels, there's kind of a point to it. You kind of know that the Clone Wars has to get to the Empire and you know that Rebels um, is kind of the building of the Rebel Alliance and getting to the point where they're actually able to blow up the Death Star. Whereas here, it's like there's 20 years before anything's going to be good again. Uh, and you're also following characters who you saw in one single episode, well, one single set of episodes in, in the Clone Wars. And they're kind of not quite established yet. And it's, it's a spin-off sort of tricky thing to do. It's like, are you going to be Frazier or are you going to be Joey? Mm. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, mm. it took Clone Wars maybe a couple of seasons before I cared about yeah. it that much. You know, it, it started, I think, a little bit weak. And it was only, in, you know, later on where you suddenly... I mean, I remember thinking that Ahsoka was quite a weak character and I had to watch 20 episodes of her or something before I, before I thought she was great. And maybe this would just be the same. You know, it's got to find its feet. The other thing that I've been doing is watching a lot of um, space movies that have been released on Netflix since the, mm. the lockdowns. And yeah. they're not all good, are they? You know. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Have you enjoyed any of them? I enjoyed Space Sweepers. Yes, oh, yeah, the Korean, the, the Korean one, yeah. Mm. yeah. It was funny because we had a podcast uh, a little while ago where we um, reviewed George Clooney's movie, which is it Mid Midnight? Midnight Sky, yeah. Midnight Sky. And then a few weeks later, somebody mentioned it. We'd all forgot we'd watched it. <laughs> like, <laughs> that bad. Amazing. But there were a few things. Like, it was the same. Greenland was on Netflix as well. And I watched that, yeah. spoke about it on the podcast, and then forgot about it, and then saw that it, that was on. I was like, oh, I wonder what that is. Oh, it's, oh, it's that film. <laughs> it's that film about that you think. There's a lot of forgettable stuff going on, isn't there? What, what, uh, Andrew, what, what were you thinking of particularly? What, what's kind of crossed Well, those, those ones, actually. I, I, space Sweepers. I did enjoy in a in a in a mm. funny kind of way. Um, what was the one recently with Anna Kendrick in it? We've just done a podcast on it. I, I forgot yes. the name of it. Do you know what? Is it Castaway? Castaway, where there's the guy. Stowaway. Stowaway. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That. Have you seen it? No. Yeah. I gave up at the trailer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing is, I, I, I'm going to say no, but you know what the hell? Maybe I have. I what did you make of it, Rick? Give me a second. I'm just trying to remember it. <laughs> um, I thought it was decent sort of serious sci-fi. You know, it was very much from the sort of 2001 interstellar school. Um, very, very bleak. I think it was one of those solid three-star films. Um, you, you know, yeah. it was an interesting idea. You know, but the, the premise I thought was great. This guy who accidentally ended up on this space mission uh, uh, on a spaceship that was meant for three people and nothing is geared for having the fourth person there. And it's kind of, what do you do in this situation? You haven't got enough fuel, you haven't got enough food. And then there's questions about whether you, you know, do you jettison someone? Do you jettison the guy who is no use to the mission? Mm. Um, and then the kind of morals around that. Um, and, you know, I think the setup was great. I just don't think it kind of delivered and it didn't really know how to end itself. Mm. Um, I mean, it looked fantastic, you know, and, and the fact that, these kind of movies are being made for TV now. I know, you know that's it, crazy. It's incredible. That's absolutely crazy. Yeah, and we're talking A-list Hollywood casts because, yeah. you know, it's Tony Collette, it's uh, Daniel Day Kim, it's Anna Kendrick, you know, the big names and amazing special effects 
on telly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, that, no, was, that was the um, the excitement for me about seeing Away when it first hit the screen. Mm. I was really looking forward to it, and it was you know, Hilary Swank, and it looked very, um, very snazzy, and, and the visuals, and it all promised to, to be a great... Um, a great show and then it just lost me in all the melodrama mm-hmm. um and then it got cancelled so <laughs> I wasn't, wasn't surprised but again maybe that should be a topic for us later on it's like all the forgettable netflix space dramas <laughs> <and movies this year. laughs> i was just gonna say what's the most forgettable one but you know we don't know Christopher Nolan's movies have always been obsessed with time, whether it's the warped dream states of Inception or the confusing backwards spy action of Tenet. He even managed to play around with time in his World War II drama Dunkirk. But in Interstellar, his 2014 space drama, he turned Einstein's theory of general relativity into the bad guy as Matthew McConaughey had a close encounter with a black hole. We'll dive into the science in a bit, but how does the movie stand up as a drama? Watching it on the small screen again, you know, the first thing that struck me was how amazing it was on the big screen. It's such a, such a broad vision. I almost felt a little bit disappointed watching it again on the small screen because I remember how absolutely astonishing it was on the big screen. The the, the vistas, not just the kind of you know the, the dust bowl on Earth and and you know and the and then the the, the, the spaceship and then the, the travel. It, it, it it's a uh, it's a film made for those for the, the, the big screen vistas. Absolutely astonishing. And I remember just just loving it at the, at the, at the cinema for its its vision. Um, and, uh, and and it felt a little bit claustrophobic on the, on the small screen, but it, you know, which is a shame because sort of those visions of the planets and the water planet and so on, it, it looks astonishing. It still looks astonishing, I think. When I saw it at the cinema, I was really annoyed by the fact that Anne Hathaway's character uses love as some cosmic force that explains everything. And I remember feeling hugely disappointed by that. But now having, having sat with me for some time, and watching it again, that, however, did work on the small screen. I was more prepared to sort of accept accept the power of uh, uh, of that, or rather the kind of emotional truth, maybe, rather than the kind of literal truth of that, and then kind of enjoy that at that level. So that's how it kind of flipped for me. I think I think I, I enjoyed it on the big screen. The first time I saw it was kind of blown away by the vision of it, but was a little bit annoyed by some of the character stuff. Whereas here, watching it again for, for this podcast, I, I was it felt a little bit not done a, it, it felt like it wasn't done a great service on the small screen except i sort of believed the characters and their and their and their kind of love for each other a bit more i absolutely adore the film i think it's a wonderful wonderful thing i think it looks great i think well it's clearly a story about uh, father and daughter which as discussed is quite key to me um, it's got space it's got father daughter <laughs> relationship it's based on you know real science it's come from the mind originally come from the mind of kip thorne a theoretical physicist and is Christopher Nolan? I why why wouldn't I love this film? Um, now, it, conversely to what Dave's just said, I was all in for the emotional journey straight up. You know, I was fine with that in the cinema. The one thing I didn't like in the cinema, which has improved dramatically for me at home because I've got more control over the sound, is the soundtrack. It was so loud in the cinema. <laughs> you just it was really hard to hear what people were saying. And there are times, far be it from me to criticise Hans Zimmer, but there are times when um, there's there's so much drama happening in the music Mm. and it's a picture of a cornfield. And it's like, (laughs) it just doesn't quite work. Uh, But at home, you can play with the levels, get the, you know, central speaker up on your surround sound and, and hear the voices more. 
And um, I, but it has to be said, I didn't watch it on a small screen at home either. Um, I can't watch something like that on a small screen. So, I, <laughs> you know, big projector, not well, normal size projector, big screen. And, <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, do it again. I just, I could watch it, you know, time and time and time again. Um, well, for like, fear of you guys throwing something at your screens at me, um, I watched it in cinema originally with a mate of mine. And, um, I don't know, maybe I'd eaten too much popcorn and it was a bit of like a postprandial dip or something, but I just wasn't really, it was like it wasn't really kind of getting through to me when I was watching it. I remember even having like a little break and going off to the loo and coming back after a while because I was just like, <laughs> I need some time out. And then... The <laughs> oh no, did, did you miss loads of stuff and kind of go, why maybe. are they 23 years older? <laughs> <laughs> and then, And then I think especially when they went through... Once they went through the black hole, I was like, I don't, I don't get this. Um, but then clearly not a quantum physicist. Um, but then at the end of the movie, I still remember that both me and my mate looked at each other and simultaneously he said, well, that was absolutely brilliant. And I went, well, that was absolutely terrible. <laughs> it just looked at me like, what? And I couldn't, and the weird thing about it was watching it again. I couldn't remember why I hated it so much at the time because it was a really good movie. And I remember thinking, oh, God, it's three hours. If it's three hours of a terrible movie, I'm going to have to, like, watch it in sections. And I just sat and I watched the whole thing. And, yeah, from right from the get-go, you know, the whole sort of, you know, Matthew McConaughey's little small town, corn-growing, um, sort of dusty dwelling, um, really sort of got me in terms of the drama. And then with the science I was following it at this time with the love story. I kind of found it believable. And even with the kind of the ideas of the fifth dimension and, and sort of like once they go through black hole and Murphy's bedroom and things, I think second time round, I was like, yeah, I kind of see what they, where they're going with this, but either way, it's amazing. And the visuals and all of that. Um, the only bit I was like, why it was when, when they had to sort of transfer um, the whole like, concept of the black holes quantum physics data in morse code i was like wouldn't that take like a millennium i don't know how they do that (laughs) but yeah i like them i like the characters they used and um i think you know i don't i don't know why i didn't really like it the first time and i'm also unsure as why it didn't get more oscars i think it got an oscar for the best visual effects didn't it but um yeah it was it was really good. <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> for my for my 2014 self just not appreciating. <laughs> it was much better than I remembered it actually, and I remember liking it in the cinema for the visuals, and I loved the the science side of it. But the whole idea that love was kind of transcending mm. um, the universe really bugged me because it's one of my pet hates in science fiction. It happens in Doctor Who a lot, and it's. Like, no, love kind of isn't a force. Stop making it a force. Um, but what surprised me about watching it again now is how well the emotional side of it works because Christopher Nolan is not an emotional director. You know, his films are, are quite cold and clinical. He's almost like Stanley Kubrick in that regard. And here he, he gets this really kind of believable relationship between a father and daughter. Uh, and I, I don't know if it's because it affected me more because my daughter is very similar age to Murphy now. And I kind of, that relationship is kind of a lot more on my mind, but 
also, I, I just think that there's something really tragic about the way their relationship unfolds, the way that Cooper has to go into space and then they can't communicate in real time ever. And he's kind of seeing her grow up um, just through these kind of vintage videos. And then she says, I'm as old now as you were when you left. And it's like, wow. You know, it's the way that this film uses time to mm. kind of put people in this kind of extraordinary situation and imagine what that will do to them is, is absolutely brilliant. You know, it's taking a kind of quite a, I think to, to what an average cinema goer is a really out there concept, even though it's kind of based on real physics and kind of translating it into something that they can kind of understand. It, right. It's brilliant. No, it's true. There's quite a lot of surprisingly relatable lines, even though they're based in, you know, timey-wimey stuff. Like, I remember they, they sort of go, you know, I'm not afraid of dying, I'm afraid of time. And I was like, oh, I kind of get it. Yeah, it makes sense to me now. And But there is that total emotional roller coaster between sort of hope and hopelessness. And it all kind of plays out in that sort of sense of, of time and reality, really, and losing it, I guess. Mm. Well, this was the the film that they described as the reconnaissance, didn't they? When Matthew McConaughey it was part uh, of it, yes, proved that proved what an amazing actor he is. And it's interesting with all these fantastic visuals and the you know incredible high concept of the film that the thing that that sticks in your mind the most is him staring at a computer screen, crying as he receives those messages. It's just an astonishing, mm. just a few moments of film, isn't it? Andrew, how does the how does the science stand up? Um, you know, they at one point they drop into a black hole. Uh, yeah. and, and, and experience other dimensions. But until that, I mean, maybe including that point, but until that point, all the time dilation on the um, on the water world and so on, um, is that does that all stand up for you? Enough, yes. So if people don't know, the film is really born of the, the mind of Kip Thorne talking to Linda Obst about making a film out of um, black holes, time dilation, all of this, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity, and that being at the core of a story. And it did go through this period of um, being a Steven Spielberg film, mm. but it ended up as a Christopher Nolan film. And Christopher Nolan and, and, and Kip Thorne had a really good relationship going back and forth on the story versus the science. And for me, as somebody who's, you know, a science communicator who loves sci-fi and also uses sci-fi to communicate science. It's, I mean, this is a great thing to have a, a great storyteller like Christopher Nolan and a great theoretical physicist like Kip Thorne um, talking to each other to create a, um, a wonderful space opera. Um, and if you hear their conversations or read their conversations, then um, I think it's pretty clear that the story was always going to be the absolute winner between story and science, but the science had to be absolutely central to that story. So if the, there's, there's one particular um, anecdote that they have where Christopher Nolan really, really wanted a particularly strong time dilation for one of the planets and and kip thorne was like no you can't do that you can't do that it, it the physics is not okay for that don't put that in the story and christopher nolan was like this is going in the story make it work and he was like no you can't do it and they'd done that a few times with things and then he'd made it work but this was like really stretching the physics this one and um kip thorne slept on it having said flat no slept on it 
And you know how that works sometimes when you sleep on something and then you wake up at sort of three in the morning, you go, ah, that's it. It happened to me with the dishwasher. <laughs> I installed a dishwasher and it's something had gone wrong and I literally woke up at three o'clock in the morning and realised what was wrong with the dishwasher. Kip Thorne woke up and realised how to sort out Christopher Nolan's planet. So he's, he's, you should have got him on, to be honest. Dishwasher guy. Um, so, so, um, the, and basically he, he decided that, not decided, he realised that you could have that extreme time dilation if the planet was right on the edge of the falling into the black hole so it's right on the edge just about to go into the black hole you could have a planet there which would have this extreme time dilation and that is of course the planet that we see in the movie that has this extreme time dilation I know what you're going to ask, so let's do it. Okay, time dilation. So, well, I, uh, I was going to say before you say that, it might be worth saying that Kip Thorne, he's a Nobel Prize winner, isn't he, for physics? Yeah. Um, and I actually read about him. So apparently, he laid down two script writing rules that one for this movie that one, nothing could violate established physical laws, and two, that all wild speculations would spring from science. And not the fertile mind of a script writer. So, <laughs> <laughs> sounds like he kind of lost that battle. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> perhaps. So, uh, time dilation is um, it comes from Einstein's theory of relativity. Right? Einstein had this um, thought when he was a patent clerk that the universe wasn't really as as newton had said it was and there were problems with it largely and one of the problems is that the planets didn't behave in the way that newton said they should um and it's just not quite working for him so he comes up with a new idea and the idea is essentially einstein's theory of relativity part of which is that time moves differently depending on the gravity and the speed that you're traveling and it's it's really counterintuitive for us to think that time ticks slower if you're traveling fast but they've demonstrated this haven't they with um with uh, atomic clocks sent up in even even not even that far out of the earth traveling just in yeah. a in, a, in an aeroplane mm-hmm. fast haven't they they've demonstrated that they lose synchro- you know they come out of sync with atomic clocks on the ground haven't they so no, absolutely it is, well, you know, the GPS in our phones works because we understand that time ticks differently in space. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's, it, the, the satellites which are controlling our GPS systems, if we didn't account for the fact that time was moving differently in space, would be wrong. We'd be not in, it wouldn't be locating us on earth so you know the science is absolutely real it's absolutely there and i think the best way of kind of explaining it that i know of is if tanavi was on a train right and had Mm -hmm. a a glowing let's for the sake of argument had a glowing bouncy ball it it was night (laughs) and you were just a bit bored on the train you've got your mask on obviously 
Sky mm-hmm. Safe. Um, <laughs> We're not animals, and, we're doing it we're doing it right. <laughs> yeah. And you just you're sitting in the window and you've got a table in front of you and you're bouncing this ball on the table, straight up and straight down. Okay. From your point of view, the ball is going straight up and straight down. Mm-hmm. Rich and Dave are standing on the platform. The train doesn't stop at the platform and it's pitch black. Mm-hmm. As the train goes past, if you think about the trajectory of the glowing ball from Rich and Dave's point of view, it goes doesn't go straight down because the train's moving. Yeah. So it goes in a triangular motion. So that as the about as the ball comes down from Tanavi's point of view, it goes straight <clears> down. From Dave and Richard's point of view, it goes across and then back up again because the train's moving across. Mm-hmm. And that path that that ball, because it's glowing, it's light and everything's mm-hmm. dark, right? that light is travelling further for Dave and Rich than it is for Tanavi. It's the same ball <laughs> is travelling further for the two people who are standing still than the person who's travelling. And that's because time ticks slower when you're moving faster. Because uh, to reach the same point, it's, make, it's having to move further for us than it is for Tanavi. Yeah. Or in that direction, rather. Yes, absolutely. And it's minuscule on a train, right? The difference is yeah. minuscule on a train. If you do it in a spaceship, travelling at nearly the speed of light, um, it's something like if you went for t- five years straight out near the speed of light, of light from Earth and five years back again, Clearly, let's send Rich on the spacecraft, right? So Rich is going five years out into space and five years back again at near the speed of light, 99 point something the speed of light. It's 10 years for him. For us, it's something like 30, 29, 30, something like that back on Earth. And it's a real effect, you know, time. that's literally time travel um, into the future. Rich has travelled 10 years, but, it, it's, you know, for him it's 10 years, but he's actually gone 30 years into the future. Sorry, I'm not exactly sure on the exact numbers, but it's it's around that. Um, and that, that kind of extreme of that is these planets that we see mm. in um, in Interstellar. Which That's is, amazing, isn't it? It's just mm. incredible, isn't it? The, the, the planet that I really love... Is um, is the water planet with the mm. with the tidal yeah. wave? Yeah, um, that is an amazing scene. Yeah. yeah, it's a really amazing scene. But that's one where the science is kind of stretched a bit, which um, is quite funny to say it's stretched because <laughs> that's what's happening with the water. Di- dilated, right? you might say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But the because uh, they they're actually the waves. Um, Kit Thorne's explained that the waves are actually tidal waves literally tidal waves and what happens with a tidal wave is that the gravity of the sun and the moon pull the water on our planet towards them in a particular gravitational pull that is some way somewhere sort of related to the moon and the sun it's not straight at either of them but because of the gravitational pull of those two things it pulls the water on earth towards them and the water on the other side is pushed away Mm. and what happens is that we move around 
through that bulge of water on either side. And that's what's happening on this planet. It stretches the credulity of the science because the wave is so sheer. That wouldn't be how it is. It'd be a more mm. of a bob over the top kind of thing. It'd be a really cool bob because you'd be like, <laughs> Whoa! you know, but uh, it wouldn't be that kind of, you know, uh, tsunami is the title. So that's a fantastic explanation. Um, thanks, Andrew. Yeah, I, 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 um, I, I, it's interesting that, as Richie said, the kind of science the science of, of of that and and of uh time and gravity is kind of the enemy it's that throughout the whole film it's what they're fighting against isn't it yeah, it, was, it, it makes you realize as well um why things like star trek um kind of just pretend this kind of thing doesn't exist because they would have no story <laughs> i think most um science fiction stories would cre- uh, treat this as an inconvenience to the plot because you can't have people sort of traveling at light speed and, and sort of visiting other planets whereas this kind of embraces the science that makes space travel really difficult and, and turns it into a challenge yeah oh, well i mean things like star trek is again it's it's for the reasons of of that that particular kind of narrative it breaks all the kind of rules of 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 causality and relativity right i mean the fact that they have subspace communication so they can send a message back in real time to people about where they are in star trek means that presumably the people on earth are getting that message before the thing has actually happened um <laughs> they, otherwise how would they get there and you know, so, on, so they, they just mess around entirely with them with uh, with the way that, that space time works for the for the purposes of making everything essentially uh, neighbours, I guess, in the Star Trek universe. One of my favourite things about this film is that it, because it was a Christopher Nolan movie, they had these incredible computers to generate those images of the black hole, right? And the um, the wormhole and everything. And that, that was the first time that they'd been able to use a computer that powerful to generate images of a black hole. And as a result of that, they learned things about mm. black holes that we didn't know before and wow. it was non-published science you know so a, a movie resulted in published <laughs> science because they've got the finances yeah. for us to do space exploration wow you know, it's, incredible, isn't it? it's brilliant that's fascinating the bit i would find a bit less likely to happen is that somehow everything that's happening to matthew mcconaughey is being controlled by these fifth dimensional beings that are supposed to be evolved humans is that right i uh, i don't that's... think so i think that's what it sort of hints at throughout the film and i think in the end what we find is that the 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 beings are in fact matthew mcconaughey's character and mm-hmm. he has stepped into basically the tesseract right and the tesseract yeah. is another thing from theoretical physics which could possibly exist which is essentially something outside of the dimensions in which we are and it's by stepping into the tesseract you can then look at um space-time the fabric of space-time and your timeline as it is always one of the very lovely things about black holes just to say is that they are Right on the edge of a black hole, time has slowed down to such a degree that it looks like, from our point of view, that it stood still. So if we're in space looking at a black hole, it's just stationary because it's just frozen in time. The stuff happening around it, being pulled into it and things, but the actual black hole itself is completely still 
and stationary. And when you think of that, that you could be in space looking at an orb of blackness that's just still because the time has stopped, essentially, then I could think you can kind of go one step further and imagine stepping outside of time altogether and looking down at your timeline and you're always being born, you're always dying, you're always going to school, you're always in a room with books on the shelf and you're dad could always come and poke the books to taste something i think it's a really clever uh, bit of visual design that because it's trying to sort of put four dimensions into a three-dimensional space and, and that's hard enough to do with a graph yeah. but to actually do it with you know people um and scenes is really clever because you, you know, we cannot visualize that because it's so far beyond our um our experience but to actually have time sort of stretching out in front of you and to have individual points of time almost like a coordinate on a map it, you know the way that he kind of shows that it, it, i think is really really clever and i think first time i watched it i kind of like don't get it. this is getting a little bit weird he's trying to do his 2001 thing but when you actually know what's coming and you watch actually no, that is really really smart the, the thing that i think is interesting in there as well and i'm not sure how plausible it is is that they make the point that gravity and not love is the the thing that can carry can travel across time and, and it's the one thing that can travel across time I mean, is that accurate yeah well gravitational waves yes absolutely they can travel across time space and time that's a thing that can happen um it does happen we've detected them gravitational waves are probably my very favorite thing about space um, and they, they, everything causes gravitate. Everything that has gravity causes gravitational waves, but they're really, really tiny. Um, the really what the ones that we've detected. The first one was a, two black holes colliding. Something you know, one point four ish billion light years away. And gravitational waves travel at the speed of light. So that thing happened 1.4 billion light years away, 1.4 billion years ago. Mm. And it was two black holes colliding. And then we detected it here on Earth using lasers, which are based on quantum mechanics, right? Firing lasers down a tunnel and back and seeing whether they wobble and if wobbled <laughs> by the time the light comes back. And they did wobble because two black holes collided 1.4 billion light years away it's mm. mad isn't it it um, is <laughs> i mean what taking it a bit more down to planet earth um and i think one thing that was brilliant about this film was that no one had any idea matt damon was in it you know they didn't oh, yeah. announce him on any on the posters he didn't do any publicity and then suddenly they get to this planet and the scientist they're looking for is Matt Damon. And so genuinely movie, genuinely movie star you didn't know was in it. And secondly, he's so un-Matt Damon. Yeah, he's, he's such so a villain in this, Martian. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's incredible. I, I agree. You know what? I, I, I remember at the cinema, this is going to sound weird now, I remember sitting in the cinema thinking, oh God, that guy looks like Matt Damon. 
Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Just I, I was so surprised, and um, uh, yeah, and, and also yeah, playing uh, playing a, a, a character obviously, you know, pushed to the edge through you know through loneliness and 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 the difficulty of the situation mm. to do a really despicable thing and jeopardise the whole mission and, and and ultimately kill at least one of the people and and, and himself and, and you know it, it's kind of a such a, such an unheroic character. So yeah, I mean, incredible piece of. Uh, you know, publicity, sleight of hand, not really revealing that he was going to be in it, but also a great character for him to play. Someone with, you know, thoroughly, um, you know, uh, antagonistic to the to the to the plot. I should say, him attempting to board the um, the endurance ship and blowing himself out of the airlock is genuinely, um, uh, you know, a very very fraught moment. Um, mm. And uh, and the, the way that um, uh, McConaughey's character just decides to go for it they've got to go for it he's going to sink out otherwise they're going to lose it he's going to have to match the spin and just do this incredible and it's a real kind of right stuff moment just a just a pilot kind of knowing right i've got i've just got to do this i've got to we've got to get in there which is, and it's a very very tense incredible moment and I, I think that's that's as a because conventional action scene from a film it's 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 really 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 great i think there's a real right stuff thing about the film in general i mean even though it's set in the future um the, you get that moment where he goes into the school to speak to murph's teachers mm. and they say oh well you know we've these are the approved textbooks now which explain that the moon landings didn't really happen oh. At, yeah this how horrible you know what a horrible future this really is you know um and then when he is in space, he's having to do all, all these things. And just the, the, I guess, the sound of the ship, the kind of rattle, um, mm. I, I think very similar to how First Man did it. You know, there's a lot that happens inside the cockpit. And when First Man, yeah. when they were doing all the Neil Armstrong landing on the moon, there was so much that was shot inside the lem sort of as it came down to the moon um, and you just got that sense of being there and this did right, that right, that right, claustrophobia yeah. and, and that you know these spaceships are as you say really really vulnerable um, yeah. and, and to do that in this film that is about sort of traveling across the galaxy but to show that the, the you know cooper is the sort of last of this breed of astronauts it was actually a really nice i guess juxtaposition yeah. But then the thing is that the future that they portray in this film is the way that they use footage of real Dust Bowl survivors from the who lived through the Dust Bowl in the 30s is really powerful. Um, you know, just talking about, I mean, I know it's the blight in this film, but a world that can no longer support us. And, and we don't see very much of it. You know, we really only see it from the point of view of the farmhouse. Um, we see a bit of driving around, but you don't get the bigger picture. You just know enough to know that the world is broken and and that even nasa you know if you look at the michael kane character he's having to do you know he's having to tell this massive lie uh to, to preserve the human race um you know it, it's it's a really really bleak film in that regard well i think i think for me it it strikes home that moment when a uh, Topher Grace. I'm so happy he was in it. I was to a lesser extent. I was like, oh my gosh, that's like a, another Matt Damon. But I think for him, for him, when he is essentially screaming at the family to kind of get in the car and they have to leave and they have to leave now before um, Casey Affleck's character comes back, because essentially it's like they stay in the dust, they die, and it's and it's so bad. And obviously they're like they're all sort of suffering with their lungs and they you know have to like wipe the dust off the table and everything it's just like crazy but you know that that's desperation where they're essentially setting a fire like setting fires in order to sort of get 
get the people out, which is weird because at the same time as they're battling against the dust and what's actually killing them, they're almost more so battling against that, that, um, anti-science, uh, mentality, right. That they just don't believe that it's either that bad or that they, you know, that the scientific system can help them or all of that, you know, all of that kind of, you know, sort of anti-science mentality. As you say, it's bleak. And it is kind of bleak, the whole thing, isn't it? Because he's got, you know, he's in a a, a time loop, essentially. He just can't escape this story because he, he's trying to tell her not to do it. But yeah. if she doesn't do it, he's not going to go there to tell he her not get to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's literally, it's yeah. determinism, right? He has no choice. Mm-hmm. He's in that, he's in this deterministic universe where he just can't, not mm. do what he's doing and obviously there's a positive thing in the end but it's it it's yeah. it it is quite a bleak situation isn't it so i said it's like that emotional roller coaster between hope and hopelessness that whole time like they're fighting to survive at the same time they think there's no hope for them and it's a weird and you see that with her especially when she's on the ground where she's fighting the whole time hoping that they'll find, you know, the solution and then kind of loses hope and then sort of regains it. Welcome to part three. Before we crack on with the news, some important bits and pieces of information. Give or take the effects of time dilation, our next episode should be making its way into the space-time continuum sometime in the second half of July. And we'll be sticking with a timey-wimey theme as we celebrate 30 years of James Cameron's second great sequel, Terminator 2 Judgment Day. In an episode we'll be calling Hasta la Vista, Robbie. Also, thanks to everyone who joined the hashtag VoteRobbie campaign in the British Podcast Awards. We didn't win, but we're very grateful to everyone who cast a vote. Okay, now it's time for the news. And James Gunn, director of Guardians of the Galaxy and the new Suicide Squad movie, has done his best to break the internet. He said on Twitter, (laughs) I've casually talked to powers that be at both Marvel and DC about it. I would love a crossover to happen. I don't think it's likely, but I don't think it's an impossibility either. Should there be, could there be DC, Marvel coming together? What do you think? Well, both universes are now multiverses by their own admission. They're both, uh, Marvel is now, uh, you know, the the multiverse of madness and has multiple time streams. And DCU, they've said that it's, you know, it's it's an extended universe and all these different things exist exist alongside each other. So uh, why not? And there is a history in the comics of of the two universes overlapping. Yeah, brilliant. Bring it on. I think it'll absolutely happen on YouTube. Um, <laughs> and maybe like comic red relief red nose day. I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, but it would be cool. It'd be very, very cool to see. Yeah. I mean it's 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 a it's a great crossover concept. <laughs> I think many people would die in it, though. Something tells me. <laughs> Superman v Thor, Iron Man v Batman. Who, who's got the most money? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to think. I'd like to see Hawkeye against. 
Who knows? I don't watch uh, these. Arrow, Green Arrow. Green Green Arrow. Arrow. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. In an archery compact, in an archery contest yes, at the Olympics. That would be perfect. <laughs> yeah, because maybe they're not allowed to do proper fighting. They're just sort of doing like tasks. Like they're, they're just going out into the world. They could have like a karaoke scene where they did a bit of singing and. <laughs> oh no! Great. I think next Should one I... will be Dishwasher Man. That'll be the next. <laughs> <to> be right. <laughs> Killing you through his dreams. <laughs> I should add that James Gunn did add a uh, that said in capital letters that's just constantly seeing crossovers and mashups is less enchanting to me than a strong story. Mm-hmm. So m- maybe he doesn't really want to see the archery contest. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so we all know that Amazon are making a many 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 million dollar adaptation of lord of the rings the second age of middle earth uh, but there's going to be more middle earth on the big screen uh, so new line cinema who made the move the peter jackson movies they're doing an anime movie which is going to be about uh, helm's deep before the battle so how, how that all came to be um is this something you're excited about no not really <laughs> oh, no, oh, you miseries. You absolute miseries. I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. I'm really up for the live action. Does that help? But yeah, um, no, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, no, I, I don't I'm, know. I'm excited about it. Yeah. Let's, let's have more. Let's have more Lord of the Rings. Really? Do you, is that what you really think? <laughs> yeah, I love listeners to the to the podcast will know that I'm a I, I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of let's let's say apologist for um, uh, kind of uh, sort of hokey f- um, fantasy. I do I do like a good fantasy story. Yeah, I, I'm I'm I, I, I'm 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 quite excited. I'm quite, I, I like the fact that there's been a bit of a renaissance in um, in fantasy series, and you know we've we've had The Witcher, and we've got you know we've we've had cursed at the other end of the spectrum and all sorts of things i you know and i, and I love all this i love a bit of fantasy so yeah more 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 lord of the from the lord of the rings universe oh. definitely mm. and i think there's good sense because curse the which they are good but they're live action and so i think yeah i think it's like it loses some charm potentially when it's anime but that's just me <laughs> I don't know, it depends how it's done I, I think the bigger challenge with this is that you're basically adapting footnotes mm-hmm. You know, the, yeah. the the good bit of Lord of the Rings is The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. There's a lot of other stuff out there, but you don't really want to read it. And sorry to fans <laughs> of The Silmarillion, there's probably a couple out there, but it's it's yeah. hard work. Yeah, no, there's, um, I, so I do, as, as, I, as you said, it's a lecture in wildlife filmmaking. A large part of that is storytelling. And I, I quite often say at the start of the course when we're talking about storytelling, I use The Hobbit as a... As an example, you know, you can't just have Bilbo staying in the Shire and nothing happening, and then maybe at the end of the <laughs> film, Gandalf does some fireworks. And every time I say it, I think, Do you know, I'd like that. That would be. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but you know, just to a degree, that's, that would be quite a fun little role-playing adventure, wouldn't it? Just, just kind of um, mooching around in the Shire, like looking for some beer and some, uh, and some, you know, and some pipe weed or something, and just uh... yeah, it's like it's like the Hobbit meets The Sims. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hobbiton, the game, yeah. But that's, but it is a rich, it is a rich universe. You know, there are, you know, the the Silmarillion absolutely is is this kind of 
historical um, doc that is, is very kind of dry. But there's 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 some there are some other great um, great stories in the in the um, uh, in, in the uh, in the Middle Earth canon. I, I think it's called the Middle Earth Expanded Universe. <laughs> the Middle Earth Expanded Universe. Yeah, obviously looking forward to the crossover with Marvel Universe um, down the line. But the um, <laughs> no, but it, you know, there, and there's some great. It's, it's a very very rich universe, and whole and it spans thousands of years. Even even the kind of flashbacks in Lord of the Rings are going back hundreds of years to you know. So there's there's lots of stories to tell, lots of battles to tell. I, I you know. And I, I think it's a you know it's a, it's a it's a world as long as they pick a good story um you know I, to, to tell in it it can't just be as Nick Setchfield from SFX magazine joked that it's not a story it's a map which I think is often the, one of the criticisms <laughs> levelled at the uh, at the two towers and I think unfairly actually it's got a great battle in it as well but as long as they pick a good story and it's and it's not just a, a world building exercise I think there's you know it's a very rich universe I think it's plenty you know, the stuff they can talk about it. See, now I really want to see Gandalf take out Hawkeye. <laughs> That's really in my head now. <laughs> yeah. Hawkeye and Green Arrow on the battlements of Helm's Deep. That's, uh, that's what it is. <laughs> So, Doctor Who, uh, there's lots of rumours that Jodie Whittaker, I don't think it's been confirmed yet, but is leaving after her third series in the TARDIS, which is kind of standard these days. Uh, there's rumours, though, that as well as a final series, she'll also be getting specials, so she'll be getting a swan song, uh, I guess, like David Tennant did. Um, I guess there's a lot of work to do in her last year because her, her era hasn't really caught fire yet, has it? I have to say, I'm a big fan of Jodie. I think she's great as the Doctor. I think she's really, mm. um, well, brilliant. And I, I, I don't know quite what it is, but I, I fell off it completely, and I haven't actually finished watching the, the last series. I, I, I don't know quite. I think it's a combination of the companions' characters and the writing, and it hasn't quite mm. hit the mark mm. for me. Um, yeah. What about you? I mean, you're agreeing, so I think you're probably the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think she's really great, and I just don't think she's had the stories to to kind of back that up. Um, I think it's a real shame. I think uh, they haven't got the companions right, and I, I think if you look back at the Russell T. Davis era, when anyone was doing exposition or anyone was having to do the emotional moments, they were always doing something else. You know, they were always being chased by a Dalek as they sort of declared love for somebody, you know, whereas this, they'll go and sit in a cafe for five minutes and and it really sort of slows the show down. And and I just think the stories haven't quite been there. And I I just, I think it's a real shame because, you you know, I, I like looking forward to episodes of Doctor Who and I haven't done that for a while. The good thing with Doctor Who, though, is that you know that probably a, a complete reinvention is never that far away. So, yeah. um, and, and actually, if they get a new Doctor in for the 60, 60th anniversary uh, in 2013, you know, um, 20, maybe, maybe it sort of change things around a bit. 2023, right? Unless we're going back in time. Um, the, Sorry, did I say 2063? You what? said 2013. Did I? Mm. Sorry. I, I, I was still living in 2013. <laughs> <laughs> You went back in time. (laughs) Um, Because you, Dave and Rich, both sort of were a bit, you know, I'm going to say sniffy. It wasn't, you weren't sniffy, but it's the word that came into my head about love in science fiction. Uh, But you're (laughs) Doctor Who fans. Mm. 
uh, I, I do like Doctor Who. I think I, you know you articulated it incredibly well. I feel exactly the same about, about this. I you know I, I think she's great, and there has been some, some some great episodes, but by and large, I never quite bought into the companions, particularly not their departure. I think at the end of this, it didn't have the kind of emotional resonance I was expecting, and I think some of the story writing has, has, has not been great. But but I, but I but I I um I do like Doctor Who. And also, I accept sometimes that you know that, that there's a there's an emotional truth to some Doctor Who stories more than perhaps the the sort of um, the, the the logic of it. Um, I was more, I guess, um, when I was perhaps uh, sort of sniffy about love as a motivation. I was more, I think, very specifically in Interstellar. I think that uh, in that, uh, not to retread ground that we've already done, I think that Anne Hathaway's character's kind of little monologue about how love is a power that overcomes in the universe it felt like a misstep in at that point in the story. And I felt, I felt as a, as a, as a thing that unifying thing in that story that felt, that felt wrong at the time. Mm. But, but, so, but generally I, 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 you know, I, 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 I totally do buy, um, you know, stories having a kind of a, uh, a, an emotional and even a, a sort of a, sometimes even a sort of legendary depth to them that, that is more important than the, um, than the kind of the, the, the logical prosaic nature, nature of it. And sometimes Doctor Who can be, can be great. Some of the best Doctor Who stories are very often, you know, a, a great character drama more than more than the time the time sort of travel has to make sense kind of thing. Um, uh, but I just haven't felt it like you. I think with this, I, I think it, it, Rich to sort of answer your first question when you're saying about how we're already talking about a new Doctor. It feels to me that, that Jodie Whittaker's almost barely got started somehow. With me, maybe maybe it's my own weird perception of time, but I feel like she's kind of still new. She's still, still got something to do. Episodes, yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah, a lot of. Our stories that we tell ourselves, and this is you know true of science fiction and fantasy, is it everything else is an attempt to sort of make out that that humanity has some sort of special qualities to it, and 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 uh, and we see this a lot in kind of Star Trek, where you have kind of characters like Data who desperately want to be human and so on, and we and, and the, the the story kind of evangelizes the idea or kind of advances the idea that that humans have these kind of special our emotions that are kind of make us special but in actual fact they're really only formed from about four different chemicals and you can sim- you can sort of synthesize them quite quite easily really and 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 actually you know a lot of what you know we the the you know things that the the that some stories will have you believe are kind of these powerful forces are, are very quite clearly these sort of evolutionary advantageous um, motivational factors that that, that um, don't have a very long lifespan. And and um, I thought what was quite interesting, I don't know whether you remember this, but the Robocop reboot, the one that starred Joel Kinnaman, um, people kind of maligned it because there's so much fondness for the original Robocop. But I don't know whether you remember seeing the Robocop reboot. Actually, it's quite a good film. And one of the things that it tackles very well is how much of what we think of makes us human is actually quite mechanical really and um if you remember the the um the 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 character of murphy and that john john um Kinnaman's character they basically adjust his dopamine levels in order to induce different kind of personalities in him to control robocop they kind of drop down uh some of the some of the kind of chemicals in his brain and, and that's quite interesting the way they kind of sort of show um, so that happening to kind of the, the as the kind of Robocop part of him, I, I thought there was a lot of interesting ideas in that Robocop film that people didn't give enough time to because they were so busy comparing it to the original. Whereas actually, it's if they'd sort of not made it a Robocop film, but have just kind of we're going to actually explore some stuff here about kind of humanity and so on. I think they would have got away with a lot more. But anyway, that, that was an interesting point. But yeah, to, to 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 your point about that, I think there's there's a lot of uh, of, of stories in science fiction and fantasy that have that sort of slightly fairy tale element to them that are desperately trying to show that that you know that there's these kind of our emotions are somehow kind of these this kind of important things that make us that give us sort of exceptionalism to the human race uh, and I, I don't know that, that, that that's actually true sorry to be such a cynic <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> okay, six words. Star Trek, Picard, trailer, cue, discuss. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a great trailer, wasn't it? And um, it doesn't give that much away. Um, but I think they've, they, I think they've wrapped production now as well, haven't they? Hmm. Yeah, so, I so. Yeah, it's, it's so well. Trailer looks good. <laughs> yeah. Three more words: seven of nine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, All answers in three words now. <laughs> oh, I'm excited. The queue's back. John Delancey, what a legend. Um, I think uh, you know he's uh, he's looking Capitan. good as well. <laughs> yeah, he's looking good in it as well. Um, I uh, uh, it does. It's one of those things where you have something that's as powerful as the the Q continuum, and you don't use it, and you kind of wonder, well, where was all that when the timeline was being split in the, the you know where where were they when the Kelvin universe mm. was splitting the, um, the the timeline? Where where were they doing all the other things that were going on? So I I, I think it's great that they've kind of they they brought him out. He's he's. Uh, he is to the next generation crew what Khan is to the original crew, right? Just that standout antagonist that um, that everyone remembers. I, you know, I, I, slightly more whimsical and, and kind of Loki like than, than Khan. I, I I agree, but you know, he's but I, I, the fact that they sort of brought brought him out in, and hopefully will be there in a, a time of galactic crisis. No, I'm, I'm into that. He's so pivotal to the Picard and Star Trek: The Next Generation story. You know, he's in the first episode, he's in the last episode. It's almost like he, he had humanity on trial and had that interest with uh, in Picard. And as you say, he is an antagonist, but it's kind of um, it's very, very playful. You know, he, and I think that's he's a very difficult character to get right because you know he could have been this kind of almost Harry Mudd joke figure. Mm-hmm. And he's not because you know that he could do something. He, he could destroy you all. And, and you know, actually, the way that he sends the Enterprise to meet the Borg for the first time is like: is this spite? Is this actually helping the human race because they discover the Borg? You know, there's always that ambiguity about him. Mm. And, and actually, across the series, the way that there's this kind of this grudging respect that he, he develops for Picard. So bringing him back here is a great idea, mm. I think. Have you seen the poster with the uh, mm. sort of in LA and it's sort of turned LA sort of freeways into a, a yeah. sort of federation, sorry, a Starfleet oh, logo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think there's rumours that they're going to go back to sort of present day Los Angeles. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then, as you say, seven of nine and she, she's there and she she's not born. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Right, well, yeah. And there's a wedding ring, right? There's Yeah. So that's interesting. Um, I yeah, I, I it's I struggle a little bit. We're talking about Doctor Who and Star Trek. Doctor Who I struggle with because if the BBC hear you saying something negative about it, they might cancel it and replace it with <laughs> some ice. <laughs> and um, Star Trek as well. It's one of those things that I'm like, well, I don't want to say that I didn't quite enjoy the first series as much as I wanted to. But I didn't. But I'm really <laughs> excited about the second series. I think there were great moments in the first series. Um, I thought it it really fizzled out at the end. They just they rushed to an ending, and it it felt like something that needed to go on over loads of series. Mm. And it's like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll just wrap it all up there. Uh, mm. It was very unsatisfying, but there were there were great bits in it. And you know, Patrick Stewart is very very watchable mm. still. Absolutely. It was lovely to see the, the um, Marina Sirtis homestead as well. That was a lovely thing. Yes. Yeah. Love that. I'd like to have pizza there. That'd be good. 
<laughs> he looked so much more at home with his pizza oven than he did on the bridge of that starship. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's like, oh, yeah, I've got to go and deal with this big skirmish on this android planet, and I could be having pepperoni pizza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. They show up again in um, lower decks, don't they? As well, we've got uh, you know uh, Riker and Troy are on the uh, on the ship that turns up at the end of that. We're only going to do a tiny, tiny, weeny bit of Marvel news this week, which is very, very unusual. But uh, there is a villain announced for She Hulk and played by Jamila Jamil from Good The Good Place. place. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. I mean, she was great in The Good Place, and I, I was so surprised when she turned up in The Good Place because she'd been a TV presenter on T4 yeah. over here, and then suddenly <laughs> she ends up in one of the best sitcoms in the yeah, world. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, she's doing well. I don't know how she's managing to get that kind of breadth of um, of jobs, but yeah, I think she's she she'll make an interesting villain, and that that is promising to be a great show with Tatiana Maslany from Orphan Black, and obviously with Ruffalo. Love to see him back. Um, so yeah, I think it'll. I think she's. I think she's pretty pretty cool in the good place because she gets that sort of subtle i don't know how she does it quite but sort of she she sort of toes that line between nice but also annoying (laughs) (laughs) really quite well (laughs) so i don't know what what kind of villain she is but she could annoy the hell out of you (laughs) (laughs) are we getting to the point now where we're getting more excited about marvel tv shows than we are about the movies Oh, maybe. I mean, they're trying lots of different kind of things, aren't they? We've said before about how well the Marvel Universe can sustain so many different types of story, and this will be largely a legal drama. And She-Hulk is a is a lawyer, um, and uh, mm. um, and uh, single female lawyer. Yeah, right, right. Uh, <laughs> we want McNeil. Um, uh, she's um, <laughs> so She-Hulk is a yeah is a is a is a legal drama which I think is great you know it, the, the Marvel universe has sort of skipped along the surface of so many different kinds of stories you know space opera and fantasy and time travel and you know it just it just sort of plays with all these different strands yeah why not a, why not a good legal drama and actually I really like She-Hulk comics actually they're really good they're you know they're really interesting and funny and different and uh, and um, this one's going to if I read this correctly it's going to bring back Tim Roth as the Abomination so tie it into the yeah. Ed Norton Hulk as well. Wow. Yeah. Why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think that film's even on Disney Plus, is it? No, it's not. It's not. So, you know, we're doing this timeline order. Disney Plus gives you the timeline order. And we're about, yeah, we're about sort of, um, I think we were on Guardians of the Galaxy or something. In the, in the middle of it, he's not even in the film. Jenny, my wife, turned to me and said, "Is there a Hulk film?" And I was like, mm, "Well, <laughs> now <laughs> <laughs> this is difficult." <laughs> and he kind of looks a bit different. <laughs> but you really want that? I, you know, I really want that. This film. is exactly. I want the not... film that she hopes is there because you know. Mm. Ruffle looks wonderful, isn't he? Popping across the Disney lot, uh, Star Wars. Uh, good news, Book of Boba Fett has finished shooting. Mm. Yay! Mm. But they haven't even started on Mandalorian Season oh. 3. What mm. are they playing at? I'm outraged every time I turn on my TV and there isn't new Mandalorians. Yes. Yeah. 
Do you want to try and just make some with action figures? <laughs> come, come on, come on, Filoni. Come on, pull your finger out. That's true. They, they might not be new Mandalorian, but there's about a million and a half like Baby Yoda videos out there. So <laughs> maybe a billion and a half by now, I don't know. Yeah. I don't, what are they playing at? Is it just purely because they've had to recast a fairly major character. I mean, Pedro Pascal is attached to The Last of Us, um, and I think that takes priority, but a lot of the time when they're shooting The Mandalorian, he's not in the armour anyway. They just put his voice in afterwards. So I don't know. I mean, I guess they did kind of give that hint at the end that the book of Boba Fett was next, and, and that's out in December. Um, so maybe they only film one of those on each set at a time, and they're doing Kenobi, and they've got Andor shooting. So we're not going to be short of Star Wars. It's just... The Mandalorian is the one we really want. Yeah. Were you a fan of it as well? <laughs> oh, loved it. Yeah, absolutely loved it. Yeah, just glorious, isn't it? From start to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I feel like, you know, it's in safe hands with that stuff, I think. Because mm. there's obviously that fear that there's going to be too much. But now I've seen that, I'm like, hey, it's going to be fine. Bring it on. I'll have more of it. <laughs> Andor I'm quite excited about because I loved those characters from... Rogue One and stuff. I think that looks really mm. beautiful. Yeah, definitely. Okay, uh, that's the end of another trip to the edge of the universe with Robbie the Robots waiting. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you so Bye. much. Thanks for coming on, Andrew. Absolutely my pleasure. It's lovely to, to meet you all and chat sci-fi. We'll be back very soon to talk Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And remember, if you need to get some extra sci-fi in your life in the meantime, the entire Robbie the Robots waiting back catalogue, over 30 episodes worth, is available now. If you like it, why not leave us a nice review with your podcast provider? Thanks for listening. We're off to surf some gravitational waves. Mm-hmm.